Podcastle, episode 311, from May 15th, 2014, The Madre del Oro, by Jeffrey Ford. Rated R, this one contains six shooters, blood, and monsters. Regulators, saddle up. Hello and welcome back to PodCastle. I'm your host and co-editor, Dave Thompson. Today we're kicking off a two-week journey into the wilderness of one of my favorite regions of the fantastic, the Weird Western. This week's story, La Madre del Oro, by Jeffrey Ford, literally just came out in what might be my new favorite anthology of the year, or at least my new favorite anthology today, Dead Man's Hand, edited by John Joseph Adams. When you think of the Weird West, if it conjures up images of monsters and violence and all manners of what-the-fuckery, then yeah, this story is for you. Next week's story is by Nathaniel Lee, and I wouldn't go so far as to call it happy-go-lucky, no, but let's say it does go off the rails a little bit, in a good way. Dead Man's Hand, by the way, is now in bookstores everywhere, filled with stories by authors you've heard here, including Rajan Khanna, Ken Liu, Elizabeth Baer, Laura Ann Gilman, and Christy Ant. Jeffrey Ford is an author we haven't featured here in way too long, and we're very excited to have him back on our show. He's a master of the short fiction with multiple short story collections out there, including The Fantasy Writer's Assistant and and The Empire of Ice Cream. His previous stories here include The Dreaming Wind and The Annals of Ellen Oak. That was the awesome story about the fairy who lived in the sandcastle, for those of you playing at home. Speaking of masters, your narrator this week is the incredible Phil Higante, who is on loan to us this week. Thank you very much, Brilliance Audio. Phil's narrated stories and books by authors such as Joe R. Lansdale, Saladin Ahmed, Andrew Voss, and Harry Harrison. Before we ride off into the sunset, make sure you stay until the end of our show so you can get details on a chance to win another John Joseph Adams anthology, The End is Nigh. Make sure you have plenty of water in that canteen and a few pounds worth of jerky. Enjoy the story. La Madre del Oro by Jeffrey Ford New Mexico Territory, 1856 I was adrift in Las Cruces with no dime in my pocket and an empty stomach. I'd started west from Pennsylvania at age 16, four years earlier, working little and then traveling till my money ran out and then working some more in hopes of reaching the gold fields of California and making a killing. My ma and pa told me I was foolish to leave the east, and they were right. God bless them. In any event, there I was on a July morning, having just arrived, standing by the stagecoach post in the bright sun under a clear blue sky. I squinted into the distance, trying desperately to figure how I could get a meal. Hungry and half in a daze, I looked around at the town of Crosses, as it was called. There was a short main street of adobe buildings, a few ranchero-style places, mostly wood, but one of stone and mortar. It looked as if the natives had built some huts out at the edge of town. I saw a tin lean-to or three out there as well. There was a hot breeze, and I could taste the dirt in the air, smell the horse shit, flies all over. People were jawing about a killing that took place in town the night previous to my arrival. 
I cocked my head and heard a terrible story. Some fellow they called Bastard George has supposedly killed and ate a young woman named of Pearl Gates. The old man standing nearest me repeated, Ate her like a rump roast. I moved away from the stage post and stumbled through town, searching as I do when I land in a new place for any signs of opportunity. I approached a few friendly-looking men and women, told them I was new in town, and inquired if they had knowledge of any gainful employment to be had. Folks talked to me, me being so young-looking, and I do believe my freckles, which I always hated as a kid, made me seem like a vision of innocence they'd not seen in those parts. The fact is, I was far from innocent. In the four years I'd been traveling, I'd laid with whores, stole food and money, and carried in my satchel a brand-new Lamatt revolver I swiped from a drunken soldier in an alleyway in Cleveland, Ohio. I practiced with that pistol when I could afford the bullets and got pretty good with it. It had two bores, and one of the tricky things about it was that, in addition to its six bullets, it fired a barrel of grape shot, too, if you flipped a little lever, like a shotgun in one hand. I'd learned to always keep it loaded, either stuck in my belt under my cold weather coat or handy in my bag. That gun got me out of a lot of scrapes, but my sweet face got me out of more. I was drenched with sweat, and it finally dawned on me how hot it was. Must have been a hundred degrees, no lie. That and my hunger were doing a wicked job on me. And the bustle in the street was dizzying. For a place in the middle of drop-dead nowhere, there were a fair amount of people in that town. There was a saloon big enough for a second floor of rooms. I thought I'd go in there and see if I could beg a drink. But just when I was stepping up out of the street onto the walk in front of the place, I heard a commotion off to my left. I stopped and looked, and there was a man in the street, and there were a bunch of folks crowding around him. All I had to hear was that he was looking to hire some gents to do a job. I quick made my way over there to catch the drift of what he was saying. Moving through that crowd sideways and abouts, I eventually slipped up to the front. First thing I saw was the fellow's badge. He was deputy sheriff and wore two six-guns and holsters. His flat-top, wide-brim hat was the same black as the bandana around his neck. He looked about as old as my pa would have been and had his same expression between a sigh and a strain. Just when I got there, it seemed folks started drifting away. The deputy said, Where are the courageous citizens of Las Cruces? I heard laughter drifting away. Wait now, he said. I already said four dollars a day. A minute later, there was only me and another character present, waiting on the deputy to say something else. He looked us over and shook his head. You gentlemen are signing up? Yes, said the other. And so I said, Yes. Follow me, said the deputy. He started walking. Then he stopped, turned to me, and said, How old are you, boy? Twenty, I told him. You got a gun? Yeah, I said. A Lamat. I ain't gonna ask you where you got that from, he said with a smile. Can you ride? I told him I'd spent a year working on a farm in western Indiana and learned to ride passing fair. It was true. Good enough, he said. He went on and we followed him to the saloon where he took us into a back room. The owner of the place, a small man with a missing left ear and long hair in the back but none on top, came in and asked the deputy what he wanted. Fetch me a bottle and three glasses, Billy, he said. 
and bring each of these gentlemen a plate of that fine horse-turd stew you're famous for. The deputy laughed. Fuck you, said Billy, and laughed as well. He left, and the deputy took to rolling a cigarette, which gave me time to look across the table at my new colleague. Name's Franklin, I said to the heavyset man. He wore a blue and white checkered suit of clothes, white shirt and spats, a bowler that sat on his big old head like a pillbox on a melon. He wore a pair of wire rim specs, pushed low down the bridge of his nose. Fat Bob, he said. We looked to the deputy, who by then had his cigarette going and through a cloud of smoke. He told us he was Deputy Stephen S. Gordon. I've been instructed by the Honorable Sheriff Fountain to deputize you gentlemen for a government posse with the mission of apprehending George Slatton, a.k.a. Bastard George, in connection with the commission of murder in the first degree and the heinous act of cannibalism. You will be given $4 a day to be paid in full upon the capture of the guilty party. If we return without him, you will be paid $2 a day. Anyone who shoots him dead will receive a bonus from me personally of an extra dollar. Gentlemen, I'll make it clear now. I aim to kill the bastard. We're going to gun this dog down and get back here as soon as possible with the body. You with me? We nodded. Good. Then meet me at the stable at dusk and we'll saddle up and head out. Be prepared to be gone for about four days, I figure. Any supplies you might need, ammunition, a blanket, whatever. Head on over to Malprop's store across the street. The governor of the territory, Mr. David Merriweather, personally wants this dog done away with, and he's willing to pay the bill. He's got some relation to Miss Gates, I believe I've heard. So stock up, within reason. We'll travel tonight into the Hornada. I hope you like the heat. That said, the door opened and a fetching young woman, wearing a loose shirt and a pair of breeches, no less, carried in plates of grub and a bottle of whiskey. We ate while the deputy drank. The plate of stew saved my life, but it very well could have been horse shit. When we were done chomping and slurping, the deputy poured us each a shot of whiskey, and we drank to the death of Bastard George. That afternoon at the general store, I put a new pair of boots and socks on the governor's tab. I didn't need ammunition. I'd saved up enough over the past two years to kill Bastard George about 20 times over. Luckily, I'd never had to actually shoot at anyone, but I waved the thing around a lot like I might. The old fella behind the counter, Mr. Malprop, asked me if I was part of the posse that was going after Bastard George. I nodded. You best get a bigger hat, wide brim to cover more of your face. I owned only the sailor's cap I presently wore on my head. You're going out into the Hornada, he said, squinted, and laughed. What is that? I asked. Hornada del Muerto, he said. The trail of death, a hundred miles of brimstone up the Camino Real. It gets hotter than this, I asked. <laughs> Lordy boy. After the devil's been out there, he goes to hell to cool off. Might be a hundred and thirty up there today, and that ain't even mentioning the Mescaleros. Mescaleros? You mean Apache? I said. They'll kill you if the summer sun don't fry you first. I heard they take scalps. The Apache? He said. No. The Mexicans were taking Indian scalps to collect the bounty for a while, 
Not sure that's still going on. So a wider-brimmed hat it was, white, as not to take in the sunlight. I stowed my cap in my bag, and now, fed and gainfully employed, I strolled over to the stable where they found me a spot to lay down on the hay in the barn till Deputy Gordon came at sunset to lead us out. I tossed and turned and sweated through the noonday heat so that when I was finally nudged awake by a boot, the straw was soaked. I came up out of a dream of being run down by Apache in the burning desert and thanked the deputy for saving me. He grunted. Along beside him was another man. Gordon said, This is Sandro. He's our tracker. I nodded to the new man, but he gave no sign of recognition. He was thin and wiry and very still, but I got the sense he could be fast as a snake if he wanted to be. The instant I thought that, he smiled as if he knew I had. Trimmed mustache and a prodigious head of black hair. Dark eyes. I'd never met one, but I figured Sandro must be a Mexican. His guns had ivory handles. While I was sleeping, the deputy had a horse chosen and outfitted for me. It was a Mustang, brown and white with a white mane. Tied on was a bedroll and a string of eight canteens. Climb aboard, Franklin, said Gordon. I removed the lamat from my satchel and stowed it in the waist of my drawers. Stepping up into the stirrup, I lifted myself onto the saddle. The deputy got on his horse, a sleek Arabian that was loaded up with supplies. Sandro also rode a Mustang. Gray, smaller than mine. We passed through the stable doors as the sun was setting. There in the yard outside sat Fat Bob on an American saddlebred. Something didn't seem right about a man in a checkered suit on a horse, but it was clear he'd ridden before. He held the reins in front of him like an old woman clutching a purse close, and he sat straight-backed as he could. Once our mounts all stood in close together, the deputy said, no one drinks water unless I tell them to, understand? If anything happens to me out on the trail, Sandro is in charge. We nodded. Let's move out, said Gordon. The Mexican gave his horse a verbal command, and the creature took off down the dirt byway that was the main street. I followed him. Fat Bob was behind me, and Gordon brought up the rear. Folks who saw us making our way out of town pointed and laughed as we went by. Las Cruces faded behind us into twilight. There was a line of orange behind the distant mountain range, and the fresh night was becoming considerably cooler, offering relief. Before the night finally settled itself upon the land, I looked out into the distance and saw nothing but dry flatness, creosote bushes here and there, some pepper grass. We rode for a couple of hours, nobody speaking, the horses remaining an equal distance apart. I was beginning to get a little sore as I'd not rode a horse in some time. Most I rode was the stage from St. Louis. So when Gordon raced past me and told me to hold up, I was thankful for the chance to get down for a spell. He allowed us to drink from one of the eight canteens we each carried. Two shots is it, he said. Turning to Sandro, who'd just ridden up and slipped sideways off his horse, the deputy asked, You got a beat on him? The Mexican nodded. How do you see anything in the dark? I asked. The moon will soon be in the sky, he said. Before getting back on his horse, Fat Bob pulled a pint bottle from his pocket, uncorked it, and took a swig. Any of you gentlemen care to join me? He asked. 
I reached for the bottle, but Gordon held my arm. That'll dry you out quick, he said to me. He looked up at Bob and said, You're going to turn into a little ball of dust, fat man, if you keep drinking that whiskey. I need to lose a few pounds, deputy. You keep an eye on the boy. I've been on these jaunts before, don't you know? Gordon shrugged, mounted his horse, and we began again. Slowly, the moon came up, creamy white and as big as a platter. It cast a glow across the landscape. Bits of mineral in the busted rocks strewn along the ground sparkled with its light. The weather dropped cooler still, and I had a slight shiver, but not enough to fetch my coat. We rode on through the night. There was a point where I suddenly woke up and caught myself from tipping off the horse. I immediately peered ahead to make sure that Sandro was still in front of me. He was, the clouds of dust from his horse's hooves visible in the moonlight. We rode through dawn and kept going until the sun was well up in the sky. The Mexican led us to a large outcropping of rock about twice the size of the saloon in town. It had an overhanging ledge. He dismounted, took his horse by the reins, and guided it into the shadows under the rock face. I did as he did. The heat of the day had already become nearly unbearable, but under that ledge it was still cool from the night. We sat down with our backs against the rock and waited for Fat Bob and the deputy. They came along soon enough, and we were all together like insects under a rock. The sun showed its power, and you could smell the landscape roasting. Waves of heat rose rippling in the distance. I'd heard about mirages. Gordon gave us all the order to drink, and we did. We had to give the horses some of our supply. Tonight we'll reach the pool of the little dog, and we can water them for a few minutes there, but we'll have to start out late afternoon, so rest up. He unpacked some dried beef and biscuit for us. The deputy gave the order to drink our fill, within reason. We did. And then we just settled back, kept as still as could be, and sweated. The coolness I'd noticed under the rock overhang was gone within an hour of our arrival. The deputy rolled a cigarette. Sandro closed his eyes and went to sleep. And Fat Bob, who never removed that little hat, took a small book out of his inner jacket pocket, pushed the specks an inch up the bridge of his nose, and commenced reading moving his lips and whispering. I was curious to find out what book it was, but I kept quiet. I don't really know how much time passed, but somewhere in there Gordon popped up and said to Bob, You're a hired gun, ain't you? I heard of you before. You killed every member of the Fallon gang. Fat Bob never took his eyes off the page. A small smile formed amidst his jowls, which were bunched up atop his tight collar. That would be a fact, deputy he said. Did somebody hire you to hunt down Bastard George? That's right, said Bob and turned the page. Who? asked the deputy. You. You ain't here at the behest of no one else. I'm a free agent. My best days are behind me. I'm just a fat man trying to scrape by. How many did you kill? I asked. Mind your manners, sonny, said Fat Bob. Franklin, said the deputy, if you want a long life, I'd suggest you not ask a gunman how many people he killed. I thought Sandro was sleeping, but with eyes still closed, he laughed. My apologies, I said to Fat Bob. He reached up and touched the tip of his hat, and we went back to quietly baking. We rode out in the late afternoon, 
The sun was unforgiving, and those few hours before dusk lasted forever. When night finally came, and with it the cool breeze, I realized just how jumbled my thoughts had been. When the moon came up, it seemed to ease my confusion and leave me with a clear head. About an hour after dark, we came to the pool of the little dog and let the horses have their fill. We didn't light a fire so as not to be spotted by mescaleros. Gordon rolled me a cigarette, and I smoked with him and Sandro. I thought he'd head north into the white sands, said the Mexican. But he's changed direction, and he's running east to the San Andres. He might have a hideout in the foothills, but shit, I don't want to be chasing the wretch that far. We got to catch him and kill him in the next couple of days, said Gordon. The shadow of Fat Bob moved among our circle. He was puffing on a pipe, sending smoke rings out into the moonlight. What do you know about George Slatton? He asked. Not much, said Gordon. He shows up in town every couple months, usually starts some kind of trouble. We've had him in the lockup a few times, mostly raging drunk or fighting. He bit Bill's ear off in a brawl. I had a feeling I'd have to kill him sooner or later. And you are saying he ate this young woman, Miss Gates? The deputy nodded. It was a sight chilled me straight through. Uh, what do you mean when you say he ate her? I need particulars. Did he cook her? The deputy said, Nope. He just ate right into her with his teeth. The doc said she was still alive when he started. Went for the soft parts. Stomach. Cheeks, rear end, you get my drift. He probably whacked her on the head with something and just started chewing. He de pera, said Sandro and tossed the butt of his cigarette. I heard he crawled out of an abandoned mine when he was a baby. A gold mine out here dug by the conquistadores. Who put him in there? I asked. Sandro shrugged. When he crawled out, that's the first time he was ever seen like he was born way back in the mine somewhere. Did they find the mother? Asked Gordon. She was down there fucking El Diablo, said Sandro. There was a moment of silence in which I got a chill, and then the Mexican burst out laughing. <laughs> Gringos. He shook his head as he walked toward his horse. Deranged said Fat Bob. There were a few more moments of silence, and the deputy said to Bob, Don't that suit itch the hell out of you? We rode hard for a few more hours, and I dozed. Luckily, I woke just in time to pull my horse up sharp next to Sandro's riderless mount. I looked around and saw the tracker's shadow a few feet away, crouched near the ground. I got off my horse and went over to him. He looked at me as I approached. The rider let his horse go here and went on by foot, he said. Fat Bob and Gordon rode up on us. The deputy asked Sandro to fill him in. So he should be right out here somewhere, said Gordon. Sandro stood and pointed away into the night. He left the horse maybe an hour, maybe two hours ago. We can catch him tonight? I think so. We settled up fast and struck out. Gordon had us ride four abreast now some distance between our mounts. He wanted to make sure we kept up the pace and swept like a net across the desert. We rode hard for an hour straight, 
and at one point my horse leaped over a tall line of creosote bush to keep its place in the formation. I was delirious with lack of sleep, caught up in the whirling bright stars of the night sky, speeding headlong in pursuit of Bastard George. As we rode on, the hard-baked dirt of the desert floor gave way to white sand, and soon enough we were traveling over tall dunes. That's when I realized the wind was beginning to pick up. I looked at the moon and saw dark clouds approaching. Then I felt the sand against my face and knuckles. I fixed the chin strap of my new hat so as not to lose it. The rhythm of the horse's hooves had slowed as the wind grew more powerful. It soon became necessary to squint in order to see any distance. Sandro cried out, There he is, ahead! We halted and Gordon pulled out a spyglass. I looked up into the blowing desert and thought I saw a shadow twitch at the very edge of night. It could have been the bastard. Gordon nodded, as if he also saw the fugitive. He reached back on his horse and grabbed a sharps rifle from its saddle holster. He took aim and fired. He's still running, said Sandro. The deputy handed over the rifle to the Mexican, who barely took any time to aim but fired off a shot. With the sound of the report still in our ears, we were hit by a blast of wind that pushed even the horses backward. The sand followed in a rush, stinging face and neck and hands. The wind was suddenly screeching. Last thing I saw was Sandro hand the rifle back to Gordon, and then I could no longer open my eyes. My horse was turning in circles. I was numb with fear. Who knows how many times we went round before I felt the presence of another horse next to mine and realized I'd stopped circling. I heard Sandro's voice, weak beneath the scream of the wind. I know a place to hide, he said. Then we were off through the storm. Somehow the Mexican had tethered my horse to his, so I gave myself up to huddling in my saddle with my arms over my face. Eventually we passed behind something that blocked the wind, and I looked up. Without the moon and stars and with all the debris in the air, it was difficult to see anything. I stared for a long while until my eyes finally adjusted to the side of a huge outcropping of rock. It was bigger than any we'd sought refuge from the sun beneath. This one, as well as being wide, went straight up a good ways and appeared to turn into a spire. Sandro was on his horse next to mine. I could see him in the dark. He didn't look the least frightened, as I certainly was. Instead, he seemed to be listening intently. How he could hear anything was beyond me. I got off my horse and moved next to the rock wall. Sandro followed me. He sat down and took out his tobacco pouch and papers. Before he lit that cigarette, Fat Bob came riding in out of the storm. You see Gordon! Sandro yelled to him. Fat Bob took his specs out of his jacket pocket and put them on. He got down off his horse, and I thought I heard the beast sigh with relief. Taking a seat next to us, he heaved to catch his breath. Finally, he said, No, I think he was behind me for a while, but then not. That's not good, said Sandro. It's a bitch out there, said Bob, and then leaned back against the wall. I was so tired I fell asleep even amid the roar of the storm. Later, when I woke to the whispered sound of my name, the world was calm. I opened my eyes and there was light on the horizon. The air was still cool. Fat Bob was standing over me. When he saw I'd awakened, 
He motioned with his arm for me to get ready. Sandro was already on his horse. He waited patiently for me and the gunslinger to mount up. Once we did, he said in a low voice, Keep the guns handy. Then he turned and we started out, riding away from the rock wall. At a distance, I glanced back, and in the weird morning light, it looked like a small cathedral. We found Deputy Gordon before the sun was halfway to noon. He lay in the white sand. Half his face was eaten, and his bowels had been chewed out. There was blood and a prodigious number of flies. The air buzzed with them like the remains of Gordon's last scream. The horses were spooked by the stench of the carnage and did an erratic dance. None of us dismounted to inspect closer. I'm impressed by the bastard's appetite, said Fat Bob. I started shaking, and Sandro gave me a quick, sharp look. It prevented me from getting hysterical, and I managed to eventually calm down. Do we go on? he asked. Fat Bob said, I don't know about you two, but I need the money. I'll be bringing back Bastard George by myself if I have to. And what about you, dog of the little pool? said Sandro. Do you need the money? I did. Watch for vultures, he said, and we rode. It was full daylight, and we moved along at a slow clip, it being already too hot to run the horses. As it was, we'd given them a good portion of our water. It was clear Sandro was going to have to find another pool before tomorrow. As we lurched along, Fat Bob rode up next to me. If I were you, Sonny, I'd not take Gordon's demise too hard. He was a fine enough fellow, but let's face it, he didn't know what he was doing. What makes you say that? I asked. Fat Bob gave me a quiet bark of a laugh. <laughs> well, he was eaten to death by the very man he'd been sent to apprehend. That's not what I would call a man who knows his craft. But take this fellow here, Sandro. He pointed at the Mexican, who rode about thirty yards ahead of us. He knows what he's doing. He'll find George Slatton, and when he does, I'll kill the bastard, because that's what I do. And I know what I'm doing. Do you understand? I nodded. Well, what is it you're doing? He asked. I didn't even try to think, but said, I don't know. Exactly, he said, and rode on ahead to join Sandro. I don't know how much time passed then under the beating sun. We seemed lost in an ocean of white dunes, up and over. I grilled in the saddle, delirious for miles, it seemed, before Sandro stopped to point at something. There were birds circling over the next dune. I came more awake and drew my gun. We didn't advance any more quickly. We couldn't. The horses needed water as it was. As we crested the dune, I noticed the sun was finally going down. The next thing I noticed was the body, lying in the sand a few yards down the descent from us. Sandro got off his horse and walked to it. He waved his arms and made noise to shoo off a big vulture. Fat Bob and I dismounted and went over to stand with Sandro. This poor fellow had also been face-chewed, gut-chomped, and his ass was all but missing. The only thing left of his face was the part that held his beard. I turned away and vomited from the sight and smell of it. Is it him? 
asked Fat Bob. Sandro nodded. Buster George. I was confused. I don't suppose he ate himself, said the gunman. Sandro crouched down. The ground shows there was someone else. Very strange footmark, though. Not an animal. On two feet. Maybe the wind changed the prints. I've seen that, said Bob. Sandro nodded and stood. Apache? I asked. Never, he said. Maybe Bastard George has a bastard kid out here, said the gunman. Fat Bob was the lookout while Sandro and I bagged what was left of Bastard George in a tarpaulin the Mexican carried. We bound that package with ropes and tied it on the back of my horse. The smell was wretched, and the thought of riding in the heat with it made me dizzy, but I knew I dare not complain. We were all jumpy, looking over each shoulder and then again. Fat Bob said he didn't like it at all and stood with his pair of cold dragoons drawn. Are we going to hunt down the killer? I asked as we finished up the job. Sandro laughed. You should tell jokes for drinks at a saloon, Sonny, said Bob. We mounted up and headed back toward town, each riding with a gun drawn. Dusk was coming on, and since we'd ridden through the day, there was no way the horses would make it without rest and water. I knew this meant that we'd have to put up at one of Sandro's rock formations just off the white sands. The prospect of spending a night in the desert, sitting still while whoever ate Bastard George was roaming around in the dark, twisted my outlook. Just before twilight, near the edge of the sands, the scrub desert in view, we passed a huge dune with a hole in it. Looked like a giant mouse hole at first. Never heard of a cave in a dune before said Fat Bob. That wasn't there before, said Sandro. The wind must have shifted the sand and uncovered it. Maybe a good place to set up for the night if it stays calm, said the gunman. Easy to defend. Easy to be trapped, said Sandro. Still, he moved his horse in its direction. Guns drawn. We stepped into the shadow of the mouse hole. I don't know what stopped me from just pulling the trigger of the Lamat. I wanted to kill the darkness. I was too exhausted to be as scared as I should have been. Sandro struck a match with his thumbnail. It flared suddenly, and then his glow dimly illuminated the cave. At first, I felt like I was in church, the dark and the candles. But the rotten meat smell of the place put me off that notion pretty quick. My traveling companion's faces in the candlelight were cut by deep ravines of shadow and made sinister. The match blew out, and the dark clapped down. I almost fired my pistol. It took me a moment to catch my breath. Another match was ignited and held up toward the ceiling. The flame burned for a half minute. Enough time to judge from the beams and supports, the remains of a wooden walkway leading back into the rock that ran beneath the sands. It was some kind of old mine. La Mare del Oro, said Sandro. The light went out. I made to bolt, but Fat Bob put his hand on my shoulder and we stood there in the dark. A gold mine? asked the gunman. The conquistadores took a lot of gold out of this land. Is it worth a look? asked Bob. People have found gold nuggets in buckets in these mines, Sandro said. 
It was like the old Spanish soldiers left the area all at once in the middle of their work. I have a little lantern strapped on my horse. Go get it, Sonny. I was afraid to be in the mine, but I was more afraid to go outside by myself. I inched my way out into the last light of day, gun hand trembling. It took me twice as long as it should have to fetch the lantern. I kept looking over my shoulder and spinning full around in the process. Making my way back to the mine entrance, I noticed a cool breeze coming and knew we'd still be in the mine when night fell. Sandro lit a match, and Fat Bob held the lantern. A better light now filled the mine ahead. My compatriots moved over to where the shaft led down into the rock. These conquistadores were rather small, fellas, said Bob, judging the opening. You'll go first, said Sandro. Franklin, said Fat Bob, you stay here and anybody comes in behind us, shoot them. At least give me one match, I said. Sandro reached into his shirt pocket and retrieved one of the wooden strikers. I walked over and took it. A whole new vision of hell, said Fat Bob. He ducked and held the lantern out in front of him. The light was slowly swallowed by the mine shaft, and I was left shivering in the dark. Eventually, my vision adjusted, and I could make out the entrance. When I sat down, gun in hand, facing it, I could see a star up in the sky. At every moment, I expected a sudden shadow to block it from view. My mind reeled with possible ways to get out of there. For a moment, I thought I'd just leave, get on my horse and light out away from all of it. After that, though, I had a better idea. I thought that if I fired the gun, they'd come running. I could tell them I saw someone lurking outside and took a shot at him. They might doubt me, I knew, but it would put a caution in them as well, I suspected, and we'd leave. I lifted my gun, but before I could pull the trigger, I heard a shot. It echoed up the mine shaft. That one report was followed by a whole volley of shots from at least two different types of guns. My first thought was they were shooting each other. There was silence for a brief time, in which, if I could have worked my legs, I would have run. Two more gun blasts came up from below, followed by a terrible scream of agony. From deep down in the ground, I heard the sound of scuffling, then two more gunshots. A moment later, I saw the light coming up the shaft, dim at first, but coming fast. It was Fat Bob. First thing I could make out was his hat had been knocked off. It became clear he had no gun in his hand, but held the lantern in one and clutched his throat with the other. He staggered forward as if he might fall. The lantern finally showed me his blood-drenched suit and shirt. He moved his hand, and I saw his throat had been torn away. A huge, bloody gash. Run, Sonny, he said in bloody bubbles, and then went over on top of the lantern, breaking it and smothering its flame. I didn't need any further orders. I was out of the cave. In a split second, I decided to take the Arabian. It had the rifle, was bred for the desert, and had no stinking weight of Bastard George tied on back. I jumped up into the saddle. Before giving the horse my heels, I turned to the mine entrance to see if Sandro might emerge. Instead of the Mexican, two other figures came out of the mouse hole. They were tall and thin with long heads. One got down on the sand and sprang toward me like a human rabbit. It bounded twice, and I was in shock watching it. Then it snarled and leaped high in the air. 
I saw it flying toward me, watched for only a heartbeat its deformed face and sharp teeth, before I lifted the lamat, flipped the little lever, and shredded that face with a barrel of grape shot. The creature made a high-pitched whimper that set my horse to running. I tried to look back and see if the monster's companion was coming after me, but by then the mine opening was lost in the dark, and I was flying across the desert on the Arabian. I don't know what direction I rode in. I may have gone in circles for a day or two. At one point I woke and found the horse gone. I staggered along, cradling the sharps in my arms like a lover. After that, I remember falling into the sand. There was a dream of being run down by Apache. A woman's voice in an odd language. Water. I woke in the Apache village. They'd found me unconscious in the desert, and since I was alone, they decided to rescue me. I spoke to them through an Indian fellow, Goyathle, who knew English very well. When I was finally well enough to speak to the elders, I was brought before them and asked to tell about what happened to my friends. They saved my life, so I couldn't lie to them, although I wanted to. I told them everything that happened. Goyathle told me they wanted me to describe the thing from the mine. Through him, I told them, I only saw it for a second. Around its eyes and down across its nose and lips, it had the beaded skin of a viper. Its eyes, just black buttons. I made a circle with my fingers. Skin looked pale and leathery, and it had a kind of fish fin at the back of the neck. Webbed fingers, I think. Other than that, and the fact its teeth were all sharpened, it could have been a man. Oh, yeah, and it leaped like a rabbit. When I was done, the chief looked around at his council and shook his head. Looking over to me, he spoke, and it was translated. The white man is not good for much, he said, but they do have fierce demons. Do you know it? I asked. The chief listened to the question and said, No, it must have come with the Spanish, slaves for their gold digging. A few days later, I was better. They took the sharps and told me if I ever came back, they would kill me. The chief wanted to know what I was going to do. I knew I couldn't return to Las Cruces, what with the deputy and the whole posse dead and no bastard George. They'd think I did something wrong. I told the old mescalero that I was going to California and make a killing on gold. He spoke a few words and laughed raucously. I asked Goyathle what the chief had said. And he told me, he says you're stupid. I relayed to him that my parents had told me the same thing. When I left the village, the chief handed me a roll of folded American money and patted me on the shoulder. I inquired where they came across the cash and was told, dead white men are generous. They also gave me back the Lamat, but caught and kept the Arabian. Two men in Goyathle took me a three-day journey on horseback to a spot where I could cross the Colorado River on the rope ferry by Fra Cristobal. I made it to California and took to prospecting near John Fremont's goldfields in Mariposa. After spending two years at it, I won't say how much gold I dug or didn't. I heard a story from a fellow prospector about a situation at one of Fremont's mines where an entire crew of Mexican workers he'd brought in were slaughtered and eaten by something that came up from deep in the earth. No one else believed the tale, 
but it was enough for me to pack up and head back east. All the way across the country, those creatures pursued me in my dreams. And even now, safe at my dead Ma and Pa's homestead, Deputy Gordon, Sandro, Fat Bob, or the monsters themselves sometimes emerge from the darkness of my mind. And welcome back. That was our story. We hope you enjoyed it. We've got a little treat for you now. John Joseph Adams is allowing us to run us forward from Dead Man's Hand. Let's tune in and see what he has to say about the power of the weird western. Introduction by John Joseph Adams The phrase Dead Man's Hand refers to the poker hand held by the gunfighter Wild Bill Hickok when, in 1876, he was shot and killed by the coward Jack McCall. There's little doubt that Hickok was playing cards at the time of his death, but what Wild Bill was actually holding seems to be open to some debate. Legend has it that Hickok's hand was comprised of black aces and eights, with the fifth card a mystery. But in some accounts, it's jacks and tens, or other variations. I suppose the only way we could ever know for sure would be to ask the man himself by reanimating his corpse or traveling back in time, both of which are the stuff of the weird western tale. Not to be confused with space westerns, like Joss Whedon's beloved, cancelled-too-soon TV show Firefly. Weird westerns generally take place right here on Earth. Only the world we all know and love is just a little bit different. Like worlds where vampires are real, or clockwork cowboys roam the frontier, or 49ers head to California to mine for mana, or airships patrol the skies. In other words, weird westerns are stories of the Old West infused with elements of science fiction, fantasy or horror, and often with a little counterfactual twist thrown into the mix. You might be thinking, that kind of sounds like steampunk. And it's true that steampunk and weird westerns are similar in a lot of ways. And you'll find some stories, like Sherry Priest's Clockwork Century novels, that could certainly be considered both. But where steampunk can take place anywhere, and often is set in Victorian-era Britain, the weird western almost always takes place in the American Old West, where steampunk is often focused on urban settings and the accoutrements of its period, the weird western is typically a darker, grittier take on a similar notion, with strong elements of the traditional western genre, the wild frontier, the gunslinger slash cowboy, gold fever. And while in both you often see anachronistic uses of technology, steampunk tends to be more focused on counterfactual scientific advancements, whereas the weird western welcomes that but also equally embraces magic and other elements of the supernatural. So while both may have clockwork automatons, it's in the weird western where you're most likely to have a dead man reanimated by a necromancer, only to be subsequently gunned down in a duel by the aforementioned automaton. The origins of the genre can be clearly traced as far back as the 60s with television shows like The Wild Wild West, and the 70s with Stephen King's The Dark Tower series and perhaps all the way back to the 1930s with the works of Robert E. Howard and the strange Gene Autry serial, The Phantom Empire. But it was Joe R. Lansdale's acclaimed novel, Dead in the West, 1986, that truly blazed a trail. The book, which features the gunslinging Reverend Jebediah Mercer, 
is considered by many to be the definitive example of weird Western literature, and consequently helped define the genre. As such, this book would be incomplete without a contribution from Mr. Lansdale. Happily, I did not have to contemplate such a notion, for the good Reverend Mercer has a new unholy monster to battle in the very first story in the anthology, The Red-Headed Dead. Unlike the above-mentioned story, many of the tales in the anthology have no literary antecedents, such as Never Sleeps, cowboy and aliens creator Fred Van Lente's wildly inventive tale of magic, alternate history, and clockwork chrysalises, and Walter John Williams' The Golden Age, a rip-roaring adventure story of superheroes in the Old West. But several of the other writers herein, like Lansdale, have already staked their weird West claims, and at my request, have returned to mine them once again. Alan Dean Foster, who over the last 30 years or so has written more than a dozen tales about Mad Amos Malone and his magical steed Worthless, brings the mountain man back to battle the occult once again in Holy Jingle. Orson Scott Card's Alvin Maker, the seventh son of a seventh son who is locked in an epic battle against the Unmaker, returns in Alvin and the Apple Tree, the first new Alvin tale in more than a decade. In Stingers and Strangers, Shannon McGuire brings us a new encrypted story in which cryptozoologists Francis Brown and Jonathan Healy encounter some very weird wasps, plus some other unpleasant surprises. And in Second Hand, Rajan Khanna returns to the world of his story Card Sharp, in which decks of playing cards are imbued with a magic that makes any deck of cards a deadly one. That's just a little taste of what this anthology has in store for you. And that last example brings us right back around to playing cards and our eponymous dead man's hand. To sum up, in the weird western, we take the historical hand we're dealt, but we bluff reality and make what you would think is an impossible play. So that's the game part. Pull up a chair, ante up, and I'll deal you in. The game's weird west, no limit, and everything's wild. Mmm... I do love the smell of weird westerns in the morning. Well, pretty much any time of the day, really. Okay, feedback this week is for Alex Daly McFarland's Feed Me the Bones of Our Saints, read by Elise Kroik. Comments on this story ranged from, wow, this was amazing, to, well, less enthusiastic responses. Also, oh my god, foxfuckers? Scattercat said, this story was surpassingly excellent. I actually enjoyed that I lost track sometimes of who was a fox and who wasn't. The fox women didn't seem to make any real distinction, so why should I? The ambiguity and the refusal to coddle or explain is exactly what I love in a well-built and well-written story. This was challenging and fascinating and thought-provoking on multiple levels. Atan agreed, saying, I thought this story was amazing. It is complex on almost every level and it defies attempts at simple moral categorization. I don't think we were supposed to root for either side of the conflict. We were supposed to find the protagonists both appalling and yet sympathize with their predicament. I'm finding it difficult to express my thoughts about this one, simply so I'll just say this is one of the best portrayals of the experience of living in a conflict that I've heard or read in a short story form. And the narration was marvelous too. Well. Thank you very much for those comments, and to everyone who commented on this one. Ride on over to forum.escapeartist.net, settle down at the bar, join our posse, play some cards, and shoot the... cannibalistic monsters? Anyway, let us know what you think of our stories, okay? 
And if you like what we're doing, please consider visiting podcastle.org and clicking on our donation button so we can keep telling you tales of the fantastic by campfire light out here on the trail of life. Thank you. That was our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Oh yeah, free books. You want to know about the free books, right? Okay, here's the deal. We've been gifted with ten copies of another John Joseph Adams collection, The End is Nigh, book one of the Apocalypse Triptych. It's a really great collection, and not only does it have stories by incredible writers such as Ken Liu, Desirina Boscovich, and other Podcastle people, it's narrated by folks like Mer Lafferty, Tina Connolly, Norm Sherman, Rajan Khanna, Roberto Suarez, and Larice White. All narrators you've loved listening to here at Podcastle. So, here's the deal. If you want one, email us at editor at podcastle.org, put the end is nigh sweepstakes in the subject line, and we'll do a random drawing. I've been listening to it myself, and I've been really impressed with what I've heard. And I'm looking forward to the next two volumes of the Apocalypse Triptych. We'll give you guys to the end of May to get those into us. The books will be gifted as Audible.com gifts, so make sure you have access to an Audible.com account. Thanks. Your team here at PodCastle is made up of your editors, Anna Schwind and myself, sound producer Peter Wood, and slushers LaShawn Wanick and Graham Dunlop. And we'll all be back next week for that other weird western I promised, Engine Song by Nathaniel Lee. We'll see you suckers then. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend or post to your blog about it or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Horace Mann said, Doing nothing for others is the undoing of ourselves. Thank you very much for listening. We'll see you in a week.